Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We begin this morning with John Sylvia. He's the chief economist at Wells Fargo, joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios uh, in New York. And I mentioned those bank earnings just a moment ago. Let me uh, read from what Brian Moynihan wrote in his statement accompanying uh, Bank of America's uh, earnings just a few moments ago. Against modest economic growth of 2%, we had one of the strongest quarters uh, in our uh, history. Let's talk a bit about growth here uh, first. Certainly the administration is talking about it, still holding firm to the fact that we're going to get to 3 or 4%. Uh, growth in light of what we've seen with healthcare last night, in light of what's going on or not going on uh, in Washington, uh, what's your sense of of where things are headed when it comes to growth here uh, in the U.S.? Well, still trend growth, uh, independent of policy in 2017 of two and a quarter percent growth or so. Next year we're looking at something like two and a half. I think if you're going to get the three percent, you really do need to tackle the issues with respect to infrastructure spending and tax reform or tax cuts, or we won't want to call it. So you know, right now. The initiative seems to be uh, staying with the trend growth for us in the United States, good consumer, uh, but uh, not, a, not at a leg up in terms of getting that 3 to 4%. Dr. Sylvia, how much has the, the story changed here? We've seen monetary policy being used here in the U.S. and, and globally. Mm-hmm. Uh, fiscal policy has been on the, uh, the back burner, I think, that, that we can say. How much is that changing? How much has that story changed here over these last few years? Well, it's interesting, David, because there's a lot of background commentary from people at the Fed saying, you know, we'd, we'd like to get some fiscal stimulus some fiscal change to help us, you know, balance a little bit better economic policy. But it doesn't seem to be happening. So once again, we're sort of dependent upon monetary policy. Now, that's a problem because right now, when you look at a monetary policy, their intention is to raise rates and to shrink the balance sheet. And that's going to be extremely difficult unless you get some help on the fiscal side. Does the call for change change when we see a personnel reconfiguration at the Federal Reserve. In other words, we've had this Fed calling for more fiscal policy for the Congress to do more here uh, in the U.S. If we get new leadership uh, at the at the Fed, as it seems likely uh, we may, does that change that relationship, the effectiveness of, of the Fed's call for more action on the fiscal side? No, I quite frankly don't feel it, it makes any difference whatsoever, David. I think most private economists like myself see, obviously, there's an imbalance in economic policy. There's a lot happening on monetary policy, very little on fiscal policy. That imbalance is not good for the economy. It creates some, again, distortions, as people talk about, when they're saying, well, interest rates are too low and additional risk is being taken in the marketplace. And, okay, how do you correct that if you can't get monetary policy um, higher in terms of a more neutral federal funds rate, as Chair Yellen has talked about. How did the, the, the flavor of monetary policy change at that meeting uh, in Portugal, Portugal a few weeks back? Of course, the Fed was not a participant in this ECB uh, meeting, but you had a number of central bankers coming together and talking about a, a path forward. How aligned are central banks in Europe, uh, in England, and then here in the U.S.? Well, I think they're very much aligned in terms of their framework. Um, they're focused on the inflation. They're focused on economic growth. 
and what we've seen, especially in the commentary this morning uh, with respect to the Bank of England, not getting the inflation numbers they expected, and the U.S. not getting the inflation numbers we expected, and yet pretty solid no. economic growth in Asia. Mm. So there's an interesting divergence. The framework is the same, but the data that yeah. goes into that framework is very different. I just came up with a chart. You're so smart, John Sylvia. You're making <laughs> charts for me by the moment. Good morning, everyone. John Sylvia with us. Of course, good morning, Boston. Bloomberg 106.1 FM. Thrilled to have you with us. You should know that Dr. Sylvia said he would not appear until Aaron Judge was in the slum. <laughs> Can we get the guy to be traded to the Red Sox? You, think, you know, do a Ruth, a, 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 a anti-Ruth or whatever? You know, I think, Tom, it goes back to an old uh, baseball saying about a sophomore jinx. Yeah. The first time through the league, he he dominates. Second time through, now they're learning how to pitch to him. Yeah. And it makes a big difference in performance. Now the challenge for him is to adjust to the new way they pitch. It's back okay. and forth and back and forth. Want to see the Segui, David Gura? Yes, please. So we need to adjust <laughs> to the new top there line. Yeah. Robert Kaplan, we were, we were stopped in our tracks when uh, Mr. Kaplan of the Dallas Fed said pricing power is not there. Is that what we're going to be talking about a year from now? I think your nominal GDP chart says that. I think with respect to Well, what are you CPI, hearing within your context oh, when they let again, you off the stagecoach? <laughs> no, there isn't a lot of pricing power. I think it's far more pervasive when you look at the consumer price index. There are a number of sectors, used car prices, apparel prices, prescription prices. Uh, even owner's equivalent rent is now weaker. And I think what Chair Yellen was saying is it's going to be more difficult for us to get to that 2% target. We expect the PCE deflator to maybe hit 2% for the second half of 2018, but certainly not by the end of this year. What do you see when you look at the, the consumer right now uh, in the U.S., when you look at the retail sector, which Tom and I have talked about time and time again, you look at the indications here as you walk along the streets of Manhattan, shops are closing. It seems like there's a lot of pressure on the retail sector. How's the consumer doing? Well, the consumer in general is do, doing very well. What yeah. they're doing is shifting how they purchase goods and services. And again, that's the pricing power, the price discovery of going on the Internet, looking at four different stores or one different site for five different items, all you know, shoes or whatever it is. And you're seeing that the pricing power isn't there, but the consumer is still spending, and they're spending very well. The ability to look at hotel bills, um, to look at uh, you know rental cars, tells me you don't have pricing power, but the consumer is willing to spend. And when it comes to sentiment, what are you you're seeing? How much do you prize those sort of soft uh, indicators when it comes to, to economic data? Well, I think, uh, you know, right now the consumer and small businesses are much happier than they were six months or a year ago. But again, putting something into action depends upon confidence that you're going to have the job next year and or for a business, you're going to have better final sales next year. And right now, it doesn't seem to be any reason to shift going yeah, forward if I got another 2% GDP. Go ahead, Don. Your labor work is is definitive within market economics. Our audience doesn't care about all the mumbo-jumbo. They're just looking at no wage growth. They're looking at two or even three Americas. Some of our audience is part of that prosperous America that you mentioned on television earlier. How do we get this economy back to a spirit that includes more Americans? <laughs> to include more Americans, you have to broaden out the economic recovery. It was one of the gifts of the, of the Clinton era that as economic growth improved, you did see 
uh, a broadening out of economic recovery. You brought a lot more people in. Now it's a little bit more difficult to do that, and we've not done that yet. You've got to get people with enough confidence, and you don't see it in the labor force participation rate. You're in the South. I mean, it's it's impossible, David Gurr, to understand John Sylvia's distance from Fenway Park and the trauma <laughs> it's done to his family. You're in the deep South of North the deep, Carolina. Deep South of Charlotte. The deep South. Yeah, okay. I'm just going to bust in Gurr's chops here, folks. You're in the deep South. How do we make big Switzerland in America? How do we make a manufacturing combine where your South is led to be blunt? Uh, better skills. Uh, looking at corporations. Uh, on, I know skills, but tax policy? Well, tax policy will work in certain areas, but it's more the federal tax policy, not the, not the local tax policy. That, that you're just shifting between one state or another the competition between South Carolina and North Carolina. Uh, but it is at, at the national level, how do you provide better returns or better incentives for investment? Let's come back here just a bit here with John Sylvia. That was just a surveillance sneeze. <laughs> <that> <laughs> you, excuse you, you me, muted folks. It very well, I'm sorry. I, was, I, I, I thought you were going to make sorry. a pregnant point. Uh, We'll come back here with John Sylvia, chief economist at Wells Fargo. Talk a bit more about trade here. Trade policy going forward. Factor this into uh, trade policy globally as the U.S. prepares I, to meet with Chinese leadership uh, in Washington David, tomorrow. David, to me, this is a huge, huge deal. We yeah. are back this morning to a under 3% belief in American growth. I, to a huge body of our listeners, I would suggest that's just not acceptable. Yeah. It's not acceptable for them. It's not acceptable for their kids. John Sylvia, you're Fall River, Massachusetts. It's near the water. It's near a big fancy city. Good morning, 1061 FM Boston. Everything should be going right for Fall River. The population in 1920 was 120,000, and it's now 30-some, 40-some percent below that. 89,000 as of 2016. It's the depeopling of these towns. There's got to be a policy to jumpstart manufacturing where you grew up in Fall River and the many Fall Rivers across America? Well, the policy has to be to improve the capital or business expense in terms of technology and or improving labor. It's that combination of capital and labor that makes these communities competitive. And that's not been the focus. It was oftentimes the textiles are leaving or the shoe industry was leaving. And it was an inability or unwillingness to reinvent themselves. How do you, you know, you look at where we were talking about North Carolina here during the break and how Charlotte's doing well, Research Triangle's doing well. You've got academic institutions there. How, how, our colleague Michael McKee was in Boston just a few weeks ago looking at the, the economy there, looking at uh, MIT, Harvard, the influence that they have on getting people trained, getting them to stay uh, in Boston. When you look at places that don't have those institutions, how far behind are they? Well, unfortunately, they're behind and they're falling further behind. Yeah. You've got to be able to improve. For example, there was a, an effort to improve biotech in many regional colleges. Uh, again, that's an effort to, real, to improve technology and, again, the expertise of the people. But that's the challenge is – Getting at cities, again, as Tom was kind to mention, Fall River, uh, no major college institution is there. Uh, southeastern Massachusetts is in Dartmouth, which is 10, 20 miles away. Um, again, without that major educational institution as an anchor to bring in talent, but also to broaden the education of the groups in terms of civic speeches, et cetera, it's extremely challenging. 
Talk a bit about trade here, if we could, in these last few sure. minutes. Uh, tomorrow, the leadership of the U.S. is going to be the leadership of China in Washington, D.C. They're going to have a dialogue that was planned uh, when President Trump met with President Xi at Mar-a-Lago in Florida three months ago. What do you expect to come out of that? We're waiting for this report on steel. We're waiting to see some details on uh, what the administration plans to do or would like to do with uh, with NAFTA, should they have the opportunity to renegotiate that uh, that trade deal. How big of a, an X factor is this for you here as you look at the economy, look at the U.S. economy? Well, David, for me, it's a very big X factor. Uh, we are in truly a global economy. It's very simple to say that. But we have significant trading relationships, and we're going to deal with Mexico and Canada and the Euro community and the U.K. and China for the next 50 to 100 years. Dealing with trade is absolutely essential. We import a lot. We export a lot. Um, and, and we just can't be just cutting down channels of trade going forward. To maintain our competitiveness, we have to import some of the best goods around the world. Do we have a better sense now, six months into this administration, of what the trade policy uh, is? Do other countries know sort of what uh, Secretary Ross, Robert Lighthizer, the lot are, are trying to do here when it comes to trade? You know, it's interesting, David. I, I do hear uh, some positive commentary from some of the elements of the Trump administration on trade. Uh, but I think in the overall flow of things, um, you don't have a sense that there's an overall direction of where policy is going. I hear good things at the, at the company level, at the cabinet level. Uh, I'd like to hear more in terms of what's coming from the White House. How about in, in Europe? We've seen a sort of Europe coalesce together after the U.S. presidential election, after the Brexit vote in the U.K. and the subsequent SNAP uh, election. When it comes to trade, how's Europe doing? Well, I think Europe, again, continues to do very well. In fact, one of the complaints, of course, is the trade surplus for Germany. But in terms of competitiveness, in terms, again, their willingness to, to make a deal with the Chinese, to make a deal with the Middle East, um, they seem to be a we're, – we're deal makers in Europe. That's what we're going to do, and we're not going to be great philosophical people about this. The philosophies behind yeah. us, we're going to do the deal. John Sylvia, thank you so much with Wells Fargo. Great conversation this morning here as we look at uh, the amazing shift, David, from Centra in coordinated central banks to the reality of a slower major economy and emerging economies doing better. You wonder if we'll get through July with that belief, but that's where we are this morning. And then on to Jackson Hole. May learn more, I suppose. Uh, well, Jackson Hole is always a surprise. We can talk about that. Why don't you bring in our esteemed guest, particularly this day, with Senator, uh, Senate Majority Leader McConnell front and center in the news. Yeah, Leader McConnell reading the writing on the wall last night as Senators Mike Lee of Utah and Jeremy Moran of Kansas said they would not be able to vote for a revised piece of legislation that would have fundamentally changed the uh, Affordable Care Act. Uh, <laughs> Leader McConnell going to meet with his caucus today, talk about a path forward when it comes to health care reform. I'll note here the president of the United States tweeting just a minute ago here, quote, as I have always said, let Obamacare fail and then come together and do a great health care plan. Stay tuned. We go now to John Lieber. He's a U.S. practice director at the Eurasia Group. Importantly for us, former principal advisor on economic policy, the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. He joins us on our phone lines. President Trump there saying a moment ago, as I have always said, let Obamacare fail. John, you're an observer of this. You were in the trenches for so long. Is this what President Trump has been saying all along? Not exactly. He started off by saying he's going to repeal Obamacare, and then he pivoted and said he wants an immediate replacement to Obamacare. 
And now he's telling folks that that, now that that's obviously not going to happen, that he wants to see Obamacare fail and then uh, get everyone together and, and try to replace it, I guess, on a bipartisan basis. And there is room for bipartisan legislation here. I think there is a, a fix that could pass the House and Senate. Um, it'll take some time to get there, though. As a, as a staffer, as a senator, what kind of engagement do you want from uh, the White House? We've seen the president weigh in here, particularly as it comes close to a, a, a bill getting to the floor, comes close to uh, a vote. Uh, how would you characterize the engagement of this president with legislative affairs on Capitol Hill? Um, I, I'd say that legislatively he's been very weak. Uh, I think that reflects the reality that you know, this is a controversial president. Uh, most Republicans in the party probably didn't want him to be their nominee in the first place. And right now he's not particularly effective at driving votes towards his agenda or driving popular uh, opinion towards, towards his agenda. Pr- provide clarity, John, as we get our first tweets. We get John Lieber tweets, which are of immense <laughs> value. We're enjoying two presidential tweets in the last 10 minutes. One of them. As I have always said, let Obamacare fail and then come together and do a great health care plan. Stay tuned. Am I right that they're not letting Obamacare fail? And if the Senate Majority Leader got their heart's desire, they would simply delay Obamacare. Can we really say let it fail? Well, I think where you're headed is a large amount of federal support for the insurance companies so that they continue to sell in the currently unprofitable exchanges. Um, That was where McConnell was headed about a month ago when he was warning his members that if they didn't pass this repeal and replace bill, they were going to have to pivot to what's essentially a health insurance company bailout. And that's because the Obamacare marketplaces, the individual exchanges, are failing, and the federal government's going to have to step in. So Trump and McConnell are, are sort of diverging on the same, or converging on the same plan right now. They're just kind of talking about it in different ways. Now, the challenge is going to be getting Democrats on board. Right now, they don't have a lot of goodwill on the other side of the aisle, and it's going to take some work to, uh, to both get Democrats on board and to convince conservative Republicans that the health insurance bailout is something that's needed to keep you know, exchanges operating in their states. How do you begin to do that, John Lieber? Uh, You look at the way that this process has unfolded. Uh, The bill itself was crafted with a very small group of of senators. It was then brought to the the wider caucus Democrats from the get-go, so they weren't interested really in engaging uh, with this process vis-a-vis this particular piece of of legislation. As somebody who's worked on Capitol Hill, you know how to reach out across the aisle. How do you begin to do that, make this something that Democrats want to engage with? Well, one thing we always used to look for on Capitol Hill is what we call action-forcing events. And generally, that's something like a really tough deadline or a a situation where you have a must-pass piece of legislation. And there are several of those on the horizon. There's the debt limit. There's the government funding bill on the 30th of September. There's also a reauthorization of a children's health insurance program. And any one of these could be vehicles for forcing a conversation about um, you know, helping insurance companies or helping the Obamacare exchanges stay viable. The, the politics here aren't great, though. I mean, I think the reality is that the you know, Obamacare is not living up to its promises. Uh, it, a lot of people are in danger of losing their insurance, and the Democrats and Republicans want to go about this okay. in different ways. So uh, based on what you, in that conversation, will take some time. Exactly. What you just said, I see no incentive for the Democrats to do anything but enjoy uh, the soap opera. We're Senate, Senate, Senate. I know, John Lieber, you worked for Senator uh, McConnell. Is speaking Speaker Ryan going to do a Boehner? I mean, is he in such a difficult position that even if he did the kind of normal politics that you speak of, that he would be enjoying the porch in Janesville, uh, Wisconsin? (laughs) 
Um, uh, you know, I think that uh, Ryan is going to have some troubles. You know, I think that you can do things on a bipartisan basis when you need to in the House, but you can only go back to that well so many times. Yeah. So Ryan really has to be careful in picking his battles here. Does he want to spend the bipartisan shit on the debt limit? Does he want to spend it on an insurer bailout? Does he want to spend it on keeping the government funded? And I think that Ryan's got to be a little strategic in how he goes about deciding when he's going to work with Democrats uh, in the House and when he's going to try to ram through a partisan agenda. John, you know how this process works, and I just want to ask you how this process played out versus how it's played out with other pieces of of legislation. I wonder if this was a a fool's errand to to begin with. You had this piece of legislation advancing out of the House of Representatives after a few starts and stumbles, moves over to the Senate. The Senate says they want to write a bill uh, of their own. Um, This sort of dual-track process, how, uh, how out of the ordinary was the way all of this unfolded? I mean, traditionally, the way things have been done is the House passes a bill, the Senate passes a bill, and the two chambers try to figure out how they're going to reconcile those two bills together, and that's kind of business as normal. You've got a partisan alignment right now that's helping the Republicans at least try to all row in the same direction, but that's obviously proving difficult because in the Republican Party, there are these massive divisions right now. Okay, are are we going to have a wise one? Actually, normal process for tax reform has been some great media coverage of the secrecy of the health care construction. Are we going to have, you know, Tip O'Neill redux uh, with tax uh, reform? I, I doubt it. I mean, I, I'd say the secrecy narrative is a little overblown. Every bill is, techni- is, you know, written behind closed doors. But on tax reform, you've got a lot more partisan alignment. And the House has been very explicit in saying they don't want to move until there's a very clear path forward in the Senate. So right now you've got Treasury Secretary and Gary Cohn, the president's chief economic advisor, working very closely with McConnell and Ryan to craft a tax bill that everybody can rally around. So I think what they'll eventually end up releasing probably in you know, September or October is a plan that's, while the details still have to be worked out, is going to be mostly pre-baked to pass the Senate and the House and get to the president's desk in as short an order as they can. John, help us understand how your former boss, how the leader – uh, counts votes. We saw these two senators defect last night so they couldn't vote for this piece of legislation that was uh, advanced uh, in, in the U.S. Senate. How does he go about convincing members of his caucus? I, I think that in this case, he, he just his, his message has been, look, this is what we promised. We said we are going to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. We've been saying it for seven years, and if we do not deliver on our promises, our voters are going to punish us by not showing up in the fall. This is something that you all said you wanted to do. And, you know, he's not somebody who can force you – know, no no senator can force other senators to do something that's against their will or it's going to hurt them in their own states. But his job here is just to say to folks, this is your choice. If you want to pass this bill that you said you were going to pass, here's your opportunity. It's never going to get better than this. And in this case, you know, senators didn't listen. They had different incentives. They didn't like the package that was in front of them. I Fascinating. I, I still, David, have trouble – using the phrase repeal and replace. I haven't come up with something better. Maybe in our next section, John Lieber can help us (laughs) come up with a a phrase that's a little more. I tried delay and replace, but I got shot down on that. (laughs) The guys like Lieber like, you sound like an amateur. We're going to come back with John Lieber working with Ian Bremer at Eurasia Group. Really, really thrilled to have uh, Mr. Lieber with us. Let me ask you a question here, John, just about the path forward. Uh, how liberated are Republicans on Capitol Hill, Republicans in the Senate now to pursue a tax reform? In other words, we're going to have this vote. It seems likely that that vote on a, an all-outright repeal here uh, isn't, going to, isn't going to pass. Are Republicans, do they now have license here to pursue uh, tax reform exclusively? Um, yes, they have license to go ahead with tax reform, but they have a huge challenge in front of them because the health care issue is not going away. 
Um, they both there's pressure on them to help fix the individual exchanges, and there's going to be uh, pressure on them from their base to continue to chip away at the Affordable Care Act wherever they can. So, for example, I, I don't see how you do a tax reform bill at this point without significantly chipping into the individual mandate, for example. And I think that this is going to continue to dog them legislatively for the rest of the year. And any piece of moving legislation is going to have some element of Obamacare repeal attached to it. And and it's going to dog them legislatively. How about politically? Uh, I suppose we are not too far off from the, the next campaign cycle. How concerned should Republicans be? How concerned are Republicans about what's happened here with health care? Well, there's obviously very level, different levels of concern inside the conference. There are some members like Rob Portman of Ohio or Dean Heller from Nevada who are very aware of the benefits of the Medicaid expansion in their states and really got cold feet on this bill because they did not want to take Medicaid benefits away from any of their constituents. There are other members like Majority Leader McConnell, um, you know, Texas Senator John Cornyn, who felt very strongly that they really needed to deliver on these promises to repeal the Affordable Care Act if they want their base to show up. So, you know, this is a tough calculation. It's really hard to know yeah. uh, what, what the, how, to, how to make the trade-off between your own base not showing up and firing up the liberals and independents in your state who are going to show up to come and vote against you. And each member has a different calculus for that inside their own head, yeah. and that's why it's really hard to get folks on the same page. And now we do Washington Calculus with John Lieber of Eurasia Group. John, let's rip up the script. How much time are these people spending raising money for the next soiree? I mean, in the news now is President Trump and paying legal bills out of all the, the money raised. But within your experience of being on the Hill how much time is just now devoted to simply raising cold cash? I would say during the day, you know, members are pretty focused on the task at hand, serving their constituents, meeting with each other, talking about policy, trying to drive an agenda forward. But, you know, fundraising is a part of the job, and it's just the reality of being a senator and a member of the House today that you probably are doing breakfast fundraisers and, and, and dinner or cocktail fundraisers on a pretty regular basis. You know, your weekends are spent traveling around the country trying to raise money, and your recesses are as well. So it's a, it's, it's a pretty consuming part of the job, but I think when they're in town and, and, and during the day, they're very okay. focused on policy and serving their constituents. How much has the, the leadership relationship changed now that uh, Harry Reid yeah, is out of the question. U.S. Senate? You've got Senator McConnell and you've got Senator Schumer. How do they get along? How are they leading together the U.S. Senate? Well, there's a lot of history between these two. Um, Schumer and McConnell uh, have history going back to the 2008 TARP vote when they both agreed that they would vote for the uh, financial sector bailout uh, without any political recriminations against one another. And then Schumer turned around and, and, and in McConnell's view, ran ads against him in, his, in a very tough Kentucky re-election, which, of course, McConnell won anyway. So there is some history there. I think com you know, one thing that complicates their relationship is that Schumer is under a lot of pressure from his liberal base to take an extreme oppositional stance to everything that Donald Trump has done. And so what you've seen as a result of that is the Democrats have just totally gummed up the Senate works and nothing's getting done because McConnell has to spend two to three days uh, just to confirm a single Trump appointee because Schumer's decided to, to just to, 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 to block as many as he can. Um, so I think that's a bad start for their relationship. You know, there's not a lot of opportunities to work together on a bipartisan basis mm -hmm. right now. And that's going to continue. That, that, kind of, that kind of negativity and tension yeah. will define it for the foreseeable future. John, exceptionally valuable this morning. John Lieber with perspective and unique perspective on Senate Majority Leader uh, McConnell of uh, Kentucky. Mr. Lieber is with Eurasia Group. David, how do you tackle this 
within your television show. I mean, I, I'm, I had it took me an hour and a half this morning to find the exact two sentences within the January CBO report where they talked about 32 million Americans. Yeah, and it's, repeal and replace. it's difficult. I will say we have some great reporters on Capitol Hill, Stephen Dennis, Sahil Kapoor, Kevin Cirilli, yeah. who's going to join us a little bit later on the program, who make that a bit uh, easier. But this is such a moving target. So much is changing. And uh, as you say, I, buried in the, the legislative <clears throat> language are the nuggets that well, you need to know. Where are you on the certitude that tax reform will be easier? Says who? I, I don't think that uh, full tax reform will be uh, easy at all. I think we could see some changes to, to the tax code, some smaller amount of tax reform. But uh, as John was just saying, the forcing mechanisms are there. You've got the debt ceiling. Uh, you've got the budget looming ahead. Yeah. You've got to think there's going to be some element of okay. compromise associated with those two yeah. things at least. The most interesting day. Stay with us coast to coast. This is Bloomberg. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. BofAML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. As I mentioned, John Miller is with us now on Bloomberg Surveillance. He's the CEO of Miller Samuel. We always love talking real estate with him. Good to see you. Uh, great great to be here, David. Once again, let's get a little lay of the land here as we approach that data coming out a little later this morning. When you look at housing writ large, when you look at housing as a component part of the U.S. economy, how's that sector doing? <clears throat> it's, it's really a mixed bag because what we have is a, really a compression in inventory nationally. <clears throat> We're seeing that across the New York metro area. Uh, we're seeing that across the U.S., and um, that is just uh, reigning in uh, the ability for future sales growth. Um, this has been a recurring problem over the last couple of years. You're 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 a specialist here in uh, New York City and uh, the the <laughs> online suburbs. Let me ask you what we're seeing here when it comes to inventory, when it comes to availability of uh, of condos and houses on the market in, in New York City. What's that market look like? Well, you have to look at the market, for example, in two different uh, ways. Yeah. If you if you look at new development, yeah. uh, at the high end, it's the same story. Lots of, lots of supply. Um, you look at the lower end of uh, new development, uh, below the $5 million threshold, um, steady activity. Uh, if you look at the resale market, um, which is about 85% of Manhattan, for example, uh, we had a, a shockingly strong spring. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Where's the real estate slowdown? I haven't observed it, and no <clears throat> one within two zip codes of me has observed it. Because because the the world sees markets like this through the eyes of a hundred million dollar apartment, and that's the right. That's the that's segment right. that's soft. Uh, the balance of the market is moving. In fact, we're starting to see resale inventory fall again. Exactly. That's what it's I see with the Miller Samuel reports. It's, it's, Where's the break point of mere mortal real estate price? To, <laughs> this is for sale, not rental. Where's the break point versus the silly fixation with mega properties? Well, right now, it, it, I'd say in in at least in Manhattan, you're probably talking in the just under two million dollar range is is the break point is the break point the the average sale price without all the the new development sort of skewing all the numbers. You're really talking in the mid millions. The median is 
Mid, is, mil, mid millions. That was a great, as a Johnny Cash song. David <laughs> the the median uh, in Manhattan, for example, is a little over one point one. Okay. That's a record. Witness what we're seeing in California. How much household income is necessary to migrate in the quartile below uh, Jonathan Miller's mid millions? <laughs> <laughs> well. Well, the answer is a big salary. It's a big salary. Even, even for example, just look at the rental market here in New York. You really need about one hundred twenty-five, hundred fifty thousand to rent a one-bedroom in Manhattan. So that's so that's why uh, for the last two years we've been seeing this exodus um, of uh, sort of this. Uh, I don't know. The the release valve has hit the suburbs. So we're still seeing heavy sales volume in the suburban markets around in New York. There's a, you okay over I'm there? okay. Yeah, no, I'm just surprised 125. <laughs> Granted, there's a, there's a game that I observe in Brooklyn that happens in Manhattan as well. You walk by one of these uh, outfits, it's Sotheby's or Hulse, whatever it is, uh, Douglas Elliman, and people stop to look at the rental listings uh, yes. on, on the, the glass windows. Uh, what's availability look like when you when you talk about rental product uh, properties in particular? Is there a sufficient, what are rental prices like? Do you want me to give you the rental prices in your neighborhood sure. specifically? Let's do, Park, let's do Park Slope, Brooklyn, where I so eighteen windows you could look at. So if you look, if you look at uh, the the boroughs, Brooklyn, especially in the context of Manhattan, is weaker, even though rents are signif- very high. That's sort of the Doesn't paradox, feel cheap. right? Exactly. So what we're seeing, we're seeing net effective rent, meaning meaning the median rent, uh, removing. Uh, uh, concessions uh, sliding, but rents are still very high. So, so it's a, it's a. I think it's a slow grind, um, simply because most of the new development built in Brooklyn is yeah, but, is rental. But, but uh, witness the California articles about California has become totally unaffordable. Right. Have you ever seen it like this, where mere mortals, you know, they, there's no dream of housing anymore. That's what I hear anecdotally. Well, it's, you know, there's a reason why mortgage volume for the last decade has been trending lower, even with low interest rates, uh, is affordability continues to be challenged. Um, and and that's, that's the problem. There's no great solution for it. But, but clearly, you know, as we saw in New York, we saw heavy volume, uh, heavy yeah. sales activity, um, we're, we're not seeing runaway price growth. Prices are already but it's, elevated. it's way more active than you expected. Absolutely. Okay, let's come back. John Miller, we're going to come back and talk about this. And it really goes uh, uh, nationwide, not only uh, within our signals, Boston, Washington, New York, San Francisco, but really coast to coast. The absolutely the surprise that people are, are well, first thing they're doing is they're moving. If, if they can't afford it, they are uh, getting you all out and migrating. We're with John Miller. Here's all you need to know, folks. Nestled on a picaresque corner of Clinton Street, in first place, originally the Norwegian Seamen's Church. I guess that means it has character. Of course. And the most important line, building amenities include a cow garden. Real estate, <laughs> real estate in Brooklyn. Take it away, David. <laughs> uh, John Miller, let me, let me ask you quickly just about, uh, you know, when, when, when you... Uh, <laughs> Musing on that kale garden. 
what are the neighborhoods you're looking at in, in particular? We talk about Brooklyn with a broad brush or Manhattan with a broad brush. Where do we see the most action or the most uh, the most change to the market uh, recently here when it comes to real estate? Well, um, about a year ago, the, the biggest change in pricing was the sort of coming up, the, the markets that were under the process of being gentrified. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brooklyn, for example, would be a Bed-Stuy or East New York. Sure. Um, but really, the, the, the surge in um, activity and pricing now is really spread out all over the place and it's and it's also across um all like for example brooklyn it's not it's not any one particular price point it's really across the board and that's um one of the things about a market like brooklyn is um it is nothing like what it was four or five years ago and so we're seeing um, the last four quarters have been record uh prices for median um we're seeing heavy sales volume and very little activity, but because Brooklyn has essentially redefined itself as something other than a cheaper alternative to Manhattan, we're not really sure how far it can go. It seems like it has more gas in the tank, which I know confounds Tom. Yeah, I, uh, I, it does confound Tom. We still have yeah. yet to get him to cross any of the number of bridges to Brooklyn proper. I'm but, bridge free. <laughs> <laughs> but that brings up a point that I want, I want to ask you here. How wide is that gap between Manhattan and Brooklyn now? If you look at the high end in particular, if there's a townhouse going for $10 million in, in, in Park Slope, I imagine that the person who's going to buy that could have bought a place, maybe not of commensurate size, but certainly something sizable enough uh, in Manhattan. Uh, what's the calculus like when a buyer comes to New York and is considering making a purchase of that amount of money? Well, first of all, just the idea that you have townhouses selling you know, around the $10 million range in Brooklyn is pretty amazing. But it's usually two to three times more expensive in Manhattan, which is a big driver. So 10 million equates to 25. And that's a big, that's a big driver of the market. But remember too, that for example, in Manhattan, only a one and a half to 2% of the transactions in Manhattan are townhouses. It is a luxury market Mm -hmm. subset, very tiny, just a couple hundred transactions a year. Brooklyn, is a lot, uh, yeah. a lot bigger in that regard. For- we're in the we're in the ten year anniversary of the financial crisis, and you know, John Miller, you've lived through it. You know, yes, every nook and cranny, particularly around four or five cities, whether it's Boston or San Francisco, or whatever. Have we become psychologically more of a rental America, or have we basically gone through all this unched in that we have to have a house? I it. it I don't think that we are steering towards rental. I think that as the uh, the home ownership rate has descended, um, there's been a lot of talk about that. I I think this is just a long hangover. Uh, really, what it comes down to, credit has not normalized for mortgage lending, unlike bubble conditions we're seeing in other forms of credit, and and that is. Create one of the key reasons why we have a shortage of supply, which is a key reason why we have very little inventory. So <clears throat> I, I still believe the conditions we're seeing now have nothing to do with a normal market. And as a result, I don't see us returning to rental in terms of a structural change. I just think it's a long grind. You say normal market, and I, I know that there will be others like normal me wondering exactly what it means and if, if, if we're – I don't know, I don't use the word bubble, but if there's going to be some reevaluation of prices here going forward. Well, uh, we've already had that in the new development market. New development prices 
you know, peak new development was 2014. And in many projects, you can see uh, new development has corrected somewhere between 15 and 35%, depending on how high the prices were in 2014 um, and their disconnect with the market. And we're already seeing evidence today uh, just in projects like um, with, uh, 157 on, uh, on in Billionaire's Row where we were having resales sell for 25%, 30% less than their last price a few years ago. So clearly that market has changed. Yeah, okay, great. I'm bored. Is Queens reset? <laughs> is Westchester reset? Is, Staten is, Island, Tom. Is Staten, Staten Island. Island uh, uh, Chris Senzi was here yesterday with his Staten Island accent. Is the real world resetting? Come on, what fifty-seven on martinis? $21 or something <laughs> like that. And, and tr- how did I know that? Is the rest of the world reset, as you put it? My head's still spinning about kale salad, but... Yeah, um, yeah. Um, no, uh, uh, we're still seeing. So, for example, if you look at markets like Queens, uh, Queens record prices, the Brooklyn spillover. If you look at Westchester, uh, uh, heavy sales volume, but not at the high end. So, uh, what's the, the definition of high end in Westchester? Uh, uh, north of two, two and a half million. Okay. What percent of the public can afford two million large in Westchester, let alone the taxes to put Scarlet Foot kids through school? <laughs> that's about ten percent of the market. So the other ninety percent um, are uh, <clears throat> seeing um, just now, though, in the last year, are starting to see rising prices. The the uh, in aggregate prices in the suburbs have been relatively flat because there was so much slack built up as everybody after the financial crush, yeah, crisis okay. rushed to the city. But now they're finally They're starting to rise. And Should uh, I rent in the suburbs if I'm part of the 90%? If I'm in the 70th percentile and aren't looking at 2 million large in Westchester, should I rent or buy in Westchester? Well, you know, the, 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 the difference between the suburbs and the city is, you know, what is available to rent. The rental market in the sub- suburbs is not a big part okay. of the market in terms of the offerings that are out there. I, I can't help you, Tom. <laughs> I, I'm just fascinated. This is so different, David, from 10 and 20 and 30 years well, ago. Well, you know what's it's interesting amazing. is that it's a polar uh, it's a polar opposite where we had uh, affordability challenged by fast and loose credit in the bubble. Mm-hmm. Now we have affordability uh, a challenge by the polar opposite that that credit remains uh, historically tight. What's and, what's happening with construction? So you talk about question. how there's been this dip in, in new development. I imagine a lot of those projects began a few years ago. Yes. Uh, is there a lot of construction happening now? Are we seeing companies embark on new projects now? Uh, we, we are, uh, but those projects tend to be skewed to the lower. The, so the larger projects, the ones that are going for the super luxury, that a lot of that, most of that, or a lot of that has been scrapped or sc- they've scrambled to re- realign it with a lower, you know, a, a smaller mix of units. Um, but there's a, there's steady regular activity sort of, sub three million, even sub four million dollars that units are selling at a normal pace. It's it's the the upper half of the new development space is where the the quiet conditions oh. exist. There's this, a lovely luxury high rises on the Gowanus Canal, Tom, you could move in and <laughs> easily walk to the Whole Foods on third and third if you needed to. You can get beer and salad on the roof overlooking said Gowanus Canal. It's opportunity in Brooklyn. 
<laughs> I wish, Saint, I wish Saint our Emily, listeners could see the scowl Saint, Saint across Emily the desk me from me. Visit. Yeah, yeah like, we'd love know. to have you. I mean, do they have Uber over there? They have Uber, <laughs> Lyft, whatever that third one is. We've right, got it. You Juno. Know. Juno. John Miller, brilliant. <laughs> John, seriously, can you take what you just has been brilliant? Can you extrapolate it across this nation? Yes, uh, you know I, the way to think of housing in the U.S. right now. Generally speaking, it's soft at the top, tighter as you move lower in price. Um, You have the product that was built across the country generally skewed to the upper half of the market. So conditions are tighter as you move lower. And that is where the more heavily, that segment is much more heavily dependent on financing and credit. And credit conditions are still, uh, still have not normalized. In, honor in of other Ken, words, Ken Pruitt, I want you to find me a listing with a WBS. Uh, David, that's a wood burning stove. <laughs> John Miller, thank you for Miller Samuel. Brilliant. This is Bloomberg. David, I want you to jump in here and really lead most of this. Joshua Green is one of our best, best, best people who writes hyper detail. He's one of these guys that, I don't know how he does it, he walks around with a tape recorder hidden inside his Irish hair. He has one on him now. I don't know how he does it. In the end, he decided to attend a Friday night party at Las Vegas, honoring Wynn and his fiance, Andrea Hissom. Trump mingled poolside with Cy Stallone and Hugh Jackman, and on we go. That is the kind of detail poolside of devil's bargain. Joshua Green has been forced to make the circuit today to, <laughs> to, to shill his book on Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, and the storming of the presidency. What's interesting about this is just published David Gura moments ago, Mr. Stevens over at the New York Times. Controversial columnist, better, Stevens. Better than good and really is the first portrait of Mr. Bannon. With that, David Girl, why don't you pick it up? Josh, uh, Tom reads that anecdote from your book about that <clears throat> wedding at the Wynn uh, Casino in Las Vegas. As you note, the following day, he heads to Washington, D.C. for the White House Correspondents Association dinner. And this, this is a pivotal moment in the political evolution of Donald Trump. He was somebody who had previously dabbled with, thought about running for president. What changed that night? Uh, in that Hilton ballroom, we've all been in there among those thousands of people uh, for that annual dinner. What changed for Donald Trump that evening? I think what changed that evening and what only became clear years later in hindsight was when Trump went to that dinner and got humiliated by Barack Obama and Seth Meyers. He was the the, the butt of jokes throughout the evening on national television. It uh, fired his resolve to be taken seriously and to run for president. And from that moment forward, even though nobody realized it and we all thought he was just trying to goose his apprentice ratings, he was absolutely serious about running for president. And this book is my attempt to kind of tell the whole backstory. Looking back now to explain the question that so many people always ask me is, how could this have happened? How could Trump have gotten elected and nobody really saw it coming? Steve Bannon is at the center of this book advisor to the president, former campaign manager for Donald Trump when he was running uh, for president. When did he first see Donald Trump as, I think you put it, as a a vessel, somebody he thinks could carry the ideals that he uh, began to care more and more about as he uh, developed professionally, uh, as somebody more and more interested in politics? You know, I met Bannon back in 2011. He was just this kind of weird, crazy, charismatic filmmaker who'd done a film about Sarah Palin, who I'd been writing about at the time because we all thought she was going to run 
for president in 2012. And Bannon back then had absolutely the same hard right, nationalist, populist politics that he did today. He thought Bannon was going to be his vessel to the White House. That didn't work out. Next, he did a movie about Michelle Bachman. Remember her? She was going to be the Tea Party vessel. That didn't work out. He finally found his guy in Trump, yeah. although it took him years to realize it. it. My older kids can't read this. The younger this, – this, you have bad words in your my, book. My, my seven-year-old has gone around school saying the first <laughs> word in daddy's book is the F word. Um, but look, really? these, these are – Steve Bannon and Donald Trump are probably the two most profane people on the face of the earth. I didn't hold anything yeah. back, so – but what irritated Bannon even more was the sudden outpouring of support for Megyn Kelly was receiving from people like Joe, like Mika, like CNN. Secretary Clinton, the next day, Bannon and Marlowe composed a point-by-point indictment. What surprised you most? I know all that stuff. You've made it clear. But Joshua, seriously, give me the why on reading Devil's Bargain. What'd you learn? Because it puts you in the room. It gives you all, you know, that, that scene that you mentioned is followed by a screaming match between Steve Bannon and Roger Ailes with yeah. a lot of F-bombs flying back and forth about... Don't say that on radio. Time I won't say on the radio. Or, you know, is is the Republican movement going to support Donald Trump or are they going to support Fox News? Ultimately, Bannon and Trump won that battle, broke the back of Fox News. You see a much different kind of coverage of Trump on the network today. But all of these fights, all of the, the, the bloodbaths that took place behind the scenes, I try and lay out in as much detail as I can so that people really get a sense of, of how this all unfolded. I think that what's going to be interesting to our audience in particular is just the degree to which uh, – Evolutions in American financial and economic history have played a role in Steve Bannon's evolution. Really does. Tom Keene, a couple of days ago, sat down uh, with the president of the Dallas Fed. An amazing anecdote. Steve Bannon's a student at Harvard Business School. Uh, he's trying to get a job uh, at an investment bank in New York, wanders up to a tent with hundreds of others Harvard Business School students. Uh, and there is the future president of the Dallas Fed standing around. And he's the one who champions Steve Bannon as somebody who should come to Goldman Sachs in New York. Absolutely. And, and Bannon, basically, what people don't get from the public portrayal of Bannon as this kind of dark Darth Vader force is that one on one, he has a ton of personal charisma, especially with business guys. He's worked on Wall Street. He knows the lingo. Uh, and as the Goldman folks, he literally talked himself into a job at Goldman Goldman Sachs was right there in, in, in the M&A boom throughout the 80s, uh, in the trenches, secretly worshipped Michael Milken, and I think has a lot in common with him. And that really yeah. was the foundation of his politics and his strategy. In our next section, I want to move forward. Is he going to talk himself out of his job at the White House? Great question. That is, <laughs> always, that, is, that is always the problem with Bannon. I think that early on he became so drunk yeah. with his own power. You saw the portrayal on Saturday Night Live as President Bannon. The one thing that Donald Trump will not abide is a co-star. And, and I think yeah. the danger for Bannon then, and, I, and maybe now after the book, is that, is that he's, he's back in the crosshairs because he's getting too much attention. You know, I really like how you gave special acknowledgments to David Gura, but not me. <laughs> What's really important, Joshua Green, is Reto Keeper of the Amex got a shout out. I wonder a, where the Amex you was. Gotta, you you, <laughs> Devil's, you Devil's bargain. This is in celebration, folks, as, as Joshua Green gets a rave up in the New York Times today for Devil's Bargain. If you are... A, a political junkie at Washington, everybody's going to buy the hardcover and walk around, even if they don't read it. They're just going to walk around with it to be cool. Bonus round, for those of us not addicted to the Washington uh, Ballet, it is uh, it reads, it reads, David, I just got it. It reads like <laughs> King's Landing in Game of Thrones. <laughs> good. 
That's what it reads like. I'm glad that the allusions to Game of Thrones continue here. Two you know, and it's not a bad analogy to Trump's Washington. <laughs> There's a lot of backstabbing and, and jockeying for power. Bannon thrived on the chaos he created and he did everything he could to make it spread. When he finally made his way through the crowd to the back of the room, he looked at Jamie and said, no, the Dragon Queen will not be here. We'll we need back. an audiobook. Tom yeah. is auditioning. Yeah, yeah, audible. Thank you. you won the we thank Audible for their support as well. Devil's Bargain, Joshua Green, the look forward for the Trump administration. This is Bloomberg. David, why don't you bring in our esteemed guest, Joshua Green? But I got one quick question. The presidential tweet two minutes ago with only a very small majority of the Republicans in the House and Senate need more victories next year since Dems totally is struck. No votes, exclamation point. I have no idea what that means. What does Mr. Bannon think of the president's tweets? I, Bannon actually, I think, likes it. Nobody else in the White House likes it, but Bannon thinks he's connecting with his audience, he's connecting with his base, that he's calling out the quote-unquote opposition party in the media. I don't agree. I think it's a, a, a stupid thing that undermines any legislative momentum. But, you know, Bannon and Trump both think differently about media and politics. It's gotten them this far. Hasn't gotten them a health care bill, but maybe they'll have to readjust and try, and try a different strategy now. I want to ask you about uh, Russia. Uh, overlaying all of this. Uh, mm -hmm. Of course, a lot of people are wondering what connections are there, what connections have been. As you looked into Mr. Bannon, as you talked to him, did he have any fascination with or interaction with uh, Russia writ large? Bannon did have a fascination with Russia, but it wasn't about uh, Hillary's emails and all the things that are causing such a scandal right now. Bannon is, uh, among other things, a very deeply read uh, intellectual who helped develop his politics by uh, exhuming the uh, fascist philosophers of the 30s and 40s. Uh, he believes in something called traditionalism, which is a, a, a very uh, right-wing, backward-looking philosophy that has certain adherents. The most important one in the world uh, before Bannon came along is Alexander Dugan, mm -hmm. who is uh, Vladimir Putin's chief ideologist. And I think one of the reasons that you see an attraction between right-wing American political types and Russia is that they really do think similarly on some of these okay, issues. So Bannon's attraction, I think, was more intellectual. I'm, I'm, I'm going to interrupt here and be rude. On page 205, you mentioned the Republican philosopher Mussolini. Yes. I, I mean, is that what you're talking about? Yes, literally, that's what I'm talking about. Bannon's, Bannon has, Bannon's guru, this is going to sound absolutely nuts, it's covered in the book. Bannon's guru is uh, an early 20th century uh, French occultist and Freemason named René Gunion, who became the godfather for a whole group of thinkers, including a guy named Julius Evola, who was Mussolini's fascist racial theorist in the 1930s, had a falling out, uh, later had influence in Nazi Germany. But these are the kind of people uh, that are shaping the outlook uh, that Bannon is bringing to Trump in the White House. There's a whole kind of hidden backstory here that uh, that kind of comes spilling out and helps to explain what it is these guys think they're doing. And I think why they think so differently about politics than anybody who's come before them. You mentioned his, uh, his uh, intellectual development. He's uh, raised Roman Catholic uh, outside of uh, in, in, in southeastern Virginia. Uh, he then uh, goes on to Virginia Tech, goes on to Harvard Business School. So we, we have his professional evolution as well. What about his political evolution? How does that come about? How does he become someone who is so interested in the ideas that you were just describing? You know, the issue he's raised, uh, working class, blue collar, Irish family, Catholic family in Richmond, Virginia. Kennedy worshiping. 
Kennedy well. worshiping. This is a Democratic family. Goes into they the were Navy. They such a good band. He goes into the Navy in what flipped Bannon uh, t- to hard right populism was the Iran hostage crisis. He was on a destroyer in the he Gulf. He could have been involved. He was part of the failed. He he he, he was he was up. Part of the failed mission to rescue the hostages, not in any direct way, uh, but served aboard a Navy ship and was so incensed as what he saw as the insult to American prestige that he turned on Jimmy Carter, became this kind of Reagan venerating um, pro Wall Street banker type throughout the 80s and just gradually drifted further and further to the right. Until he got to where he is today. There are people today talking about uh, the I word, talking about uh, impeachment. And there's a a moment in the book where you're talking about uh, the the debate over impeachment of President Clinton and how people kind of getting ahead of themselves when it came to this is an impeachable offense. Can you draw a parallel to today? Uh, Are... in this case, Democrats uh, in the same place that Republicans were that's at a, back in, 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 the, in the mid-90s. That's a great question. Bannon, Bannon, in addition to being a, a kind of a weird guy and a brilliant strategist, is, has a, a very sharp analytical mind. And, and to me, what drew me to him originally, I wrote a big Business Week cover story on him in 2015, was that I thought he correctly diagnosed what it was that stopped Republicans in the late 1990s when they tried to impeach Bill Clinton, when they did impeach Bill Clinton. Uh, and, and Bannon's contention was that Republicans became trapped in their own echo chamber. They were talking to each other. They weren't listening. I think that Democrats are run the risk of doing the same thing now yeah. with all the hysteria over impeachment. It's not going to happen. And, and if that's where they cast their lot, if they don't do anything to kind of appeal to the type of voters that Trump's won, who knows? Maybe well, we get right two terms wa- of Trump. I wanted to go right there, which is what's going to be the de- – I mean, as a Washington watcher, how do they coalesce after the uh, secretary goes down in flames in the election? What's the new Democratic Party going to look like? You know, the, the new Democratic Party is the party of the resistance. And, and, and one of the things Bannon told me on election morning was – do you understand what happened? Do you understand why she lost? I said, no, explain it to me. And he said, Democrats and Hillary and you guys, meaning the media, he considers us part of the left, you guys fell prey to the same thing that Republicans did in the 1990s. You believed your own spin. You didn't see how the world really works. That's why Hillary lost. I expected after the election that there would be this great Democratic awakening, that there would be a lot of uh, internal angst and debate about how the party could broaden its appeal. That hasn't happened. Uh, The Democratic Party has been unified in opposition to Trump, but they haven't really done a lot of soul searching or given any indication that they're going to change. Joshua Green, Devil's Bargain, with a wonderful review in The New York Times today. Of Bloomberg News, Joshua Green, Devil's Bargain, must read on your Washington. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.